This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. I'm joined now on the line by Andrew Steinthal and Chris Stang, who are the co-founders of The Infatuation. Andrew and Chris, welcome to Launchpad. Hi there. All right. Thanks for having us. First things first, I got to get a a coincidence out of the way. My uh, kids grew up with Hannah Albertine, who's one of your uh, writers, and they think she has the coolest job on earth, which is she writes for the infatuation. So it's she does. yeah, it's it's awesome. She's uh, next next in line for CEO. Well, she is a force of nature, and her dad is one of my good friends here. He's a pen professor. So anyway, it's uh, it's it's great to make that connection. So I'm going to point our listeners to your to your website, and we're gonna we're gonna start with the infatuation. So that's the URL, theinfatuation.com. But you guys also own uh, Zagat, and we're and that's z a g a t dot com as well. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But uh, let's go back to the. Well, let's start with the with the elevator pitch. So, uh, by the way, how do you guys divide up your responsibilities? By now, you're joined at the hip, I'm sure, after 10 years. But but how do you think about roles so I know where to direct questions? Uh, so I'm the CEO, and um, I kind of oversee, I mean, obviously, oversee the business, but also uh, really handle, like, the product, the creative, the content, uh, kind of big picture vision. All right. And, the, and, 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 and is that Chris? That's Chris. That's Chris. Okay. And Andrew, yeah, how about I, you? Andrew, I oversee making money. Making so money. It to, as it relates to brand partnerships okay. as a whole, which, which is a big part of our revenue, that is me. So I play our CRO. 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 And, Great. Yep. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you, Chris, give us the elevator pitch. So, so tell us what the infatuation is. So the, the infatuation is essentially uh, a restaurant discovery platform centered around situational recommendations. So our big differentiating factor is that, um, you know, we kind of start with uh, the situation rather than starting with, you know, storytelling around a chef or a specific uh, narrative around the restaurant. And that was really when we launched this thing, that was really what we ended up sort of, you know, helping our friends with essentially, which is, you know, right in the, we, we launched it in 2009 mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of right after there had been a big shift in consumer behavior around dining, meaning that, you know, Food Network and Top Chef in the early days of social media had really created this massive audience of people who thought of dining as a hobby and as a passion in their lives rather than maybe just uh, as a thing you did before you went to a show. Um, so we were really trying to sort of help those people navigate uh, incorporating, you know, restaurants and dining into their lives. Uh, but in the way that, um, I think they were, you know, sort of, they were trying to figure out how to dovetail these, uh, you know, experiences into their normal lives. Meaning where do I go when I want to take, uh, my boss to dinner somewhere great? Where do I go for a first date? Um, rather than a place where I might go with a significant other that I've been with for a while, right? Those are different situations. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and ultimately, that's how we differentiated ourselves, and that's still really how we differentiate ourselves today. I mean, you know, you'll see that's really been extrapolated out now uh, into content that's very targeted towards, uh, you know, ba- 
based on the data that we see, the way that people live their lives. So we have guides that, uh, that, that speak to where to go when uh, you just got a haircut and you feel really good about yourself, <laughs> uh, which, sounds, which sounds ridiculous on paper, but it's funny because it really relates to um, and resonates with people. Um, and that's, that's been a big key to our success. Yeah. So, so Andrew, tell us how the content is actually organized. It's, it's fairly deep, long-form content. So give us an example of how you actually provide those recommendations. Yeah. I think that's really a good Chris question. Okay, Chris? On the content front. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we, um, you know, I guess you could call it long format. These days, I don't even know what the definition is anymore. You know, the internet, I feel like, has redefined, you know, short form versus long form. But what we really try to do is just to create um, reviews that really were useful without being too long-winded in the sense that um, I actually had this conversation with another uh, reviewer from another publication on stage at this event a couple months ago, which was that, you know, in some ways restaurant reviews are literature, right? And that mm -hmm. might be, you know, the New York Times or the New Yorker. Um, and that's, there's a place for that. And that's great. Um, ours is really, it's like content as a service almost. So, what we really try to do is get down to the essence of what people should know about a restaurant. Um, often the food is only a part of that. It's really, you know, sort of focused around the experience. So um, the reviews themselves are, you know, there's a review body that kind of, you know, lays out the experience that you'll have. And then we have what's called the food rundown, which is really meant to be kind of a quick hit assessment of the best things to order or certain things to avoid on a menu. So that's sort of the core, the reviews are sort of like the nucleus, the core product. And then, we have guides that will, you know, combine those reviews in, um, in you know, around a certain topic. Like um, that could be a neighborhood guide, you know, where to eat in um, near Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia or um, in Santa Monica. Or it could be something really nuanced like where to go uh, to dinner in your gym clothes. Yeah. And, uh, and that will be the sort of ways that, way that the reviews are presented. And, and, and just the way we think about content generally is that it, it's – Everything we, we do, whether that's, you know, written content, video content, uh, everything needs to sort of live on a spectrum between uh, utility and entertainment. And we always talk about the best of our content being straight down the middle. Yeah. So I guess what I mean by long form, I, you're totally right. It's maybe it's not an Atlantic article or anything. But if you think mm -hmm. about, you know, the way many of us uh, pick a restaurant, we go to open table, we start clicking search, search, uh, dynamic search features. And essentially, all we're doing is searching on tags that have probably been provided by the by the restaurant, and it's it's it doesn't tell you very much about the experience from an, a, a third party perspective. And that you guys yeah. do, right? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and we and we have all that as well, right? We we um, we also have one of the things that we did the first day we wrote a restaurant review is we added what we called perfect four tags, which was that that intention was to go beyond um, just you know, cuisine or a neighborhood uh, and into, you know, things that were more situational, right? So you can still search our site just like you might another platform mm -hmm. by, um, you know, category, you know, filters. But at the same time, once you find, you know, the once you find restaurants that show up based on those filters, you can dive in for, you know, the narrative or the experience that, you know, one of our, one of our writers had at that place. Yeah. And I think to, to that point too, the, the relatability of the voice is what has always separated us, mm -hmm. right? You can go to open table all day, but do you trust open table to give you a recommendation? Right. That you, you know, like to, to find the right place. 
you go to open table to actually make that reservation, but you kind of need a credible source to tell you what's good and what isn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so we, that's definitely the layer we provide and have spent the last decade earning credibility um, in that space. And, you know, now a lot of the platforms will call us because they need that layer right. of authenticity and credibility on top of, of their product. So, Andrew, t- take us back to the to the origin. You guys were in the music industry, if I read correctly. And so you do. Yeah. So so how'd you get into this? We I mean, it's, it's a. It's a funny story. I mean, Chris and I were both music directors at our respective college radio stations. Uh, when we were both at college, I was at WICB in Ithaca College, and Chris was at KCSU, Colorado State. And we were ah. actually both in New York City at a CMJ music convention, um, which before South by Southwest was crazy. CMJ was like the place that broke bands and huh. was a huge, huge conference um, for college radio, um, which was important back in the day. And uh, we actually met on set at TRL um, in its heyday in the year 2000. We both got a, the same phone call from a, from a mutual friend that we had talked to who was putting together a group of his favorite music directors. And we literally met on set at TRL sitting behind Carson Daly when Destiny's Child was the guest and became fast friends and drank a couple of beers that night. And we're like, we're going we're gonna to do things together. <laughs> and uh, I had grown up in New York and Chris grew up in Colorado and he moved to New York after school and we both... Uh, you know, we became best friends and kind of ascended the ranks of the music business, uh, living parallel lives, and both wound up at Warner Music Group. Um, I was the VP of PR at Warner Brothers Records eventually, and Chris, a VP of marketing at Atlantic Records. Both both of those, you know, companies owned by Warner overall. And, uh, you know, we had a bunch of different business ideas. We had always had this entrepreneurial spirit, and we had a couple companies that or ideas for companies that never really actually turned into action. Um, but, you know, eventually, look, the music business is a 24-hour sport, and you find yourself at shows three, four nights a week. And part of going out to shows is going to bars and going to restaurants before and after and entertaining, you know, the artists, the managers, the press, yourselves, and you need the right place for the right occasion. And we were really into it. We loved hmm. You know, not just the food necessarily, but the experience of going to the right place with the right people, right? And taking the journalists or the artists and then being like, oh, man, that was that was awesome, right? And there's that, there's social capital and being the people with the information. So, you know, and not only was it our peers and our coworkers that would turn to us for recommendations, but our friends and family and all of that. And you kind of looked around and realized that, there was a shift in consumer behavior a little bit, whereas Momokuku was brand new and blowing up and Shake Shack had just, you know, started really launching all over the place. And, you know, dining was was more accessible now. It wasn't just stuffy French tablecloth restaurants. And it was it was more exciting and, and more, you know, something that people were were really acting on their passions for. So we were like, hey, we watched, you know, places like, you know, Pitchfork in the music world kind of become the most influential platform that could break a record and there was nothing like that um in in dining Mm -hmm. from from our point of view so we were like hey why not us um and so that was the beginning yeah so i i wonder uh, chris maybe i can direct direct this to you you guys were really successful in a very glamorous industry you had jobs people would kill for did you and, and you know, you had this pre-existing friendship that really said, hey, you want to do something together. Um, but did you embark on this saying, this is it, we're going to do this as a business, 
and we're we're burning the lifeboats and it's we're all in or was it more of a side hustle for a while so it was kind of all of the above i mean mm-hmm. one you know it was a side side hustle for five years and we were really fortunate that we were able to do it that way because i think we both needed to learn a lot about how to build a business and how to be partners um and just you know, how to grow something organically, which is what, you know, we wanted to do. Um, so, you know, we, in many ways, we had kind of burned the lifeboats, but knew that it was going to be a process. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that, you know, we did, basically, we just decided to write some restaurant reviews and put every single person we knew into an email and send it off. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take long before this thing started talking back to us. And it wasn't like, you know, suddenly there were thousands and thousands of people visiting the web- website every day right away, but you could just feel it, you know, it felt sticky. It, yeah. it, wasn't, dis- it wasn't dissimilar to when you could, you know, you put a certain song out into the world and even though it didn't become a hit right away, you could just feel it react in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so once we felt that, then he and I were just like, okay, this is the thing and put everything we had into it. I just had the caveat that we put everything we had into it, you know, as long as we didn't neglect our day jobs. That was really, that was our life for five years, which was basically writing restaurant reviews and trying to build community around this thing instead of sleeping. Yeah. Um, We we were fortunate that the people we worked for and with really loved it from the outset and kind of gave us, you know, free reign to do what we were doing as long as we fulfilled our commitments with the day job. But um, it, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of like a steady, build over the span of five years that eventually just got so big that we were, you know, we kind of said, cool, now's the time. And we left our jobs um, on the same day, April 1st of 2014. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm really glad I asked because it's a little bit unusual that you can incubate something like that for five years and, and get it to work. But I think maybe one of the distinctive characteristics is that it was a passion and it was really rooted in this authentic content that you guys could provide and that would persist. And so it sort of worked as a side hustle for a while. And I'm really glad I asked because it's nice when I see those examples. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny looking back. I I can imagine, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out how to be prescriptive about how to mm-hmm. start a business because I think it's every business is different. Every founder story is different. You know, everybody's experience is different. And this just happened to be our experience and it worked for us. Yeah. So Andrew, let me ask you, it's, it was in the tone of your voice when you were describing the early days, the, the implicit tension between authentic content and monetization and, and how you make this an actual business. And I wonder how you manage that today. I mean, you're, you, on the one hand, the reason people go to the infatuation is that you're a trusted third party. On the other hand, you got to get paid somehow. So how do you manage that tension between monetization and authenticity? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, and, and look, it's something we've thought about from the beginning, right? I remember the day that we started the company having the, you know, we, we were always under the mindset that if we could build a really, really strong community around a brand that people cared about, there were going to be brands that would give us money to reach the audience, yeah. you know? And so I remember the first day we like made a list of brands that we were like, someday these people are going to give us money. And right. This was like 2010. Um, so it was like American express and seamless and whole foods and Jameson and absolute. And, you know, 
at Stella Artois and brands like that that yeah. we were like, cool, we, we use this stuff, you know, Equinox in our daily lives. There's no reason why, you know, we can't build something that they would want to market inside of. So we, we've always been, you know, very strategic about being proactive in going after brands that we're interested in. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's been a big part of our success with, doing really cool integrated marketing partnerships with brands, which is what we do. Um, and so much of it has been experience based too. We started doing events when we were, it was 2000, I think we started in 2010. I think our first event was 2011. Um, and we, you know, really like galvanizing a community around, around the brand and yeah. bringing, bringing people to life and be, and, and that was a, a way that we grew ourselves in the brand and also started to work with partners. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we were just really strategic about who we went about going after. And we're, you know, smart about trying to take money from brands that people wouldn't call BS on. You know, I think that that and that, that was a big, big part of us growing our credibility in business. We knew that we couldn't, you know, go advertise, you know, say McDonald's to right. our audience. Right. Because then they'd be like, OK, like, <laughs> how can we trust you guys? Right. And. And that still holds true today. You know, we can't, we've never taken money from restaurants, right? And yeah. like, that's something that people assume, oh, you're in this space. That must be how you make money. And it's like, nope. Um, we take money from a lot of other non-endemic types of brand partners, but never directly from restaurants. Yeah. Um, so that's always been a part of what we do. And we just try and be proactive with it. Well, with the caveat you said about, and are being prescriptive about entrepreneurship. I think there is a really good lesson there, which is you. These are brands that are adjacent. They are not brands that are con, that that are conflicted by or that where you'd be conflicted with your content. And that's yeah. the really critical distinction. Is that yeah, sure they might serve Jameson in the bar, but it's not a review of the liquor. It's a review of the bar. And so you have this, these adjacent brands that you can take money from. And I think that is a nice play we should add to the playbook for entrepreneurs. Yep. Totally. And, and I think it's also about, you know, look, money's great. Building a business is, is great. You always, there's always, you always want to get it, but it, not all money is the right money on so many levels. Right. You know, so you just got to be strategic with not just looking for short term gains you know there's 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 you just got to be smart about it yeah. so we've we've made some good choices along the way which has paved the way for us and now look some of our best best brand partners from you know nike to to lyft to bmw are non-endemic partners right. right that like see the audience for what it is and understand that we're a cultural you know a lifestyle brand that can market to a to a young affluent audience in a way that's authentic that gets people excited and, and, you know, opens up pocketbooks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad, and I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Chris Stang and Andrew Steinthal, who are the co-founders of The Infatuation. Uh, so, Chris, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but but when I was in college and, you know, soon after college, for me, the Zagat Guide was everything. It was the way I found great stuff to eat. And I, I had them all in a beautiful little book. And, uh, and would you, you know, so would you ever have imagined that you would now own that guide? So tell us about that and, <laughs> and what's happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that certainly was not something that, um, I pictured being part of this journey, but 
we were the same way. I mean, obviously, you know, the Zagat guides were important um, for us, you know, exploring the city in the early days. And we were obviously very aware of, you know, the power of that brand and had actually talked a lot about in the early days of building the first iterations of the infatuation and talked a lot about that. The fact that the thing that was so nice about the Zagat was that you knew exactly what you were going to get. You saw that red book right. and you under, you understood what it was, what was going to be inside and you knew it was going to be helpful. And I think, you know, in, in 2009, 2010, 2011, you know, the internet had really just sort of fragmented things so much that we felt like there was a big hole in terms of a national, you know, something that's either nationally or globally recognizable as a thing that's going to help you find, you know, restaurants. So, so much of us, so much of what we were doing was inspired by Zagat. Um, and then, you know, randomly one day in 2017, I got an email from Google letting me know that they were planning to sell it. So it, uh, it became a pretty easy decision to pursue it, even though I, you know, I think we were uncertain of what that would mean uh, over the, you know, sort of over the long term. But um, once we really started digging into the possibilities, we got really excited and then, um, you know, here we are with two uh, trustworthy and, you know, high quality brands in the space. So it's amazing. So tell us what you're what you're doing with it. I'm really excited. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, we are, too. You know, one thing that was clear to us as we were building the company was that we wanted to build something big and ubiquitous. Right. And, and that could impact people all around the world. And it's a slow go when you're, you know, building city by city and, you know, hiring people in local markets and training them to write in the voice and to dedicate themselves to quality and integrity. And, um, you know, we, we are, and we're committed, you know, we're and are committed to that as our strategy with the infatuation. But I think we were also just understanding, I mean, I was certainly, you know, kind of sitting around thinking through, um, how we were going to, you know, tackle user-generated content because that was just going to be inevitable at some point if mm -hmm. we were truly going to scale into a global company. So, you know, in the early, you know, months of 2017, we were sketching out, you know, our product team was, you know, coming up with potential ways that, you know, a community might rate restaurants next to the edit editorial point of view from the infatuation. And it's a tricky thing to think about um, in terms of not confusing the user with two opinions and so on and so forth. But, right as we were working through those issues when the, the Zagat thing came up. And, you know, a lot of people don't know, but Zagat was the first ever example of user-generated content. It was the first wow. time that, yeah, it was, I mean. They mailed books, a survey, they, right? Yeah, exactly. That, those books that people know so well, they're not restaurant critics writing their point of view into a book. It's, it's, it's a community's aggregate opinion. And it was really, you know, Zagat was really the first time that a non-professional meaning a non-restaurant critic could write restaurant reviews. So, yeah, I mean, they would, you know, it started out with Tim and Nina, the founders, giving their friends paper surveys, and then they would, you know, their friends would fill out uh, information about their favorite restaurants and rate them, and then they would take all of those surveys and compile aggregate scores and take little snippets from each survey, which became those legendary quotes that make up the reviews. That's still, to this day, how it's done, or at least it was up until basically... Um, the Google acquisition happened. So what we started thinking about and got really excited about was what if we could take the gap back to its user-generated roots, build a, you know, platform there that was filled with 
a savvy dining community's opinions about restaurants much in the way it always has been um, and then let that happen sort of in parallel to what what's happening at the infatuation meaning um, you know remaining an editorial platform with a highly skilled highly trained group of people around the world writing restaurant reviews so that's what we're doing right now um, one of the first things we wanted to do just because we had heard from people um, from the minute we announced the acquisition every single day that they really, really wanted the print book back. Yeah. Um, so we decided that we should give it to them, especially because this year is the 40th anniversary of Zagat. So um, this past Tuesday, we released the uh, 2020 New York City Restaurants Guide in, in New York, a 350-plus page book that is, um, we think, you know, exactly what people will expect to see from a Zagat book. All right. So that that was kind of the beginning of I think what we're calling you know our relaunch of the brand, and we're right now in the middle of development on uh, the digital product, which I think will look a lot like hopefully a much much better, more trustworthy, more reliable version of the Yelps and the TripAdvisors and all the other quote unquote user generated platforms out hey, there. Chris, so I got to interrupt you there, but that's a great note to leave it on. Uh, so we are going to look for it. Um, and we can get great. it in the bookstore, right? We can get it from Amazon. Yeah. Amazon, independent bookstores, uh, all of the above. So all right. please go find one. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. It was terrific. Thanks for having us. I'm Carl Ulrich. Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.